Today's show is sponsored in part by InterOptic. Fortune 500 companies choose InterOptic optical transceivers to minimize the risk of network failures and maximize IT savings. InterOptic's transceivers are 100% guaranteed compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and others, and available at a fraction of the cost. Work with the optics experts at InterOptic. Go to interoptic.com packet pushers to find out more. Today on Heavy Networking, Aerospace Networking, we're chatting with Lexi Cooper, who works for Blue Origin as an avionics integration engineer. That's right. Lexi does networking for rockets, vehicles that are headed for space. And if Lexi doesn't have the coolest job description ever, Lexi, I I don't know who does. Uh, Welcome to Heavy Networking. It's great to have you. And if you would tell the folks who you are and and maybe in a bit more detail uh, what it is that you do. Man, that... uh... That intro makes me sound way cooler than I actually am. Thanks for that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hi, folks. I'm I'm Lexi. And as mentioned, I I work for Blue Origin as an avionics integration engineer. Even though the word networking is not in my title, I still am on the networking team. So specifically what I do is integration of the networking avionics systems on Blue Origin's launch vehicle, New Glenn, which is their new heavy lift rocket. Um, I generally hang out in a lab. We have something called Hardware in the Loop where I help troubleshoot networking devices that will be on the rocket before they're actually on the rocket. So I do mm-hmm. think it's a, it's a pretty awesome job. <laughs> I also am co-host of the podcast, The Art of Network Engineering. You can find us on all your favorite podcast catchers. So that's, yes, yes. that's my promo to, uh, for that. To, to many episodes of The Art of Network Engineering. You guys have some great conversations with some really oh, cool people. Honored. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're big fans of yours. So thank you so much for having me. I'm stoked oh, to be here. The Mutual Admiration <laughs> Club. Hooray. Yeah. <laughs> Quickly move on. Quickly move on. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the prop, Drew. Uh, so Lexi, let's, so, let's talk about your career path. How in the world does one get to be working for Blue Origin? Because you didn't, you didn't start there. This isn't your first rodeo. Yeah. I, I constantly ask myself how I got here. Um, I won't get too into the weeds on it, but I had a career before getting into tech that was not tech related. And it sort of came about because I decided, you know, in my late twenties, I don't like what I'm doing. I want to start over. Um, I did sort of like a career reset. And part of that was looking at various options for careers in tech. I ended up taking a class at a community college called Introduction to Networks. I didn't know what it was. Um, I was just taking it to try things out. And it just so happened I got lucky enough that it blew my socks off. And I thought it was just (laughs) the coolest thing ever. Um, And I knew then that that's what I wanted to do. So once I figured out what a CCNA actually was, I started studying for it. Um, And in the meantime, I was, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Was that class one of those, um, the Cisco Networking Academy classes that they were doing? Yeah, it was a Netacad class. Absolutely. Yeah. I didn't know what any of this was when I first started. I just knew it was some course at this community college near where my parents lived, you know? So, so Cisco just lured you in is what happened. Yeah, they did. They sure did. <laughs> they, they, they do, they do a smart thing by partnering with community colleges for Netacad core. I mean, it was, it was great. And I had a wonderful, amazing female instructor who was around my age, you know? And, and so it just, that made a huge difference for me too, I think. And, in, in you know, my whole life, I kind of thought I wasn't smart enough for tech or engineering anything, but seeing somebody my age that I could relate to uh-huh. uh, in front of me, teaching me the material, interacting with me, it was that plus the Netacad material. I mean, it was awesome. So it, it definitely hooked me. From there, 
I was lucky enough to secure a position as a NOC technician at IBM, working on their hybrid cloud platform. Um, from there, I was promoted after about six months to network engineer position. So I ended up for the majority of my time working at IBM as a network engineer doing sort of like a NOC plus role. So I was the first sort of line of defense. I would monitor the alerts board, make tickets and everything. And then I'd be the first network engineer on the scene to troubleshoot. IBM's got lots of networks, I would imagine. So was this internal like IBM IT support or... Can yeah, it was not the net, yeah, it was not the enterprise network for blue for uh, sorry for IBM. It was the actual like their hybrid cloud platform that they sell to customers. So right, gotcha. They, yeah, they have a lot of product. It was a huge network, uh, hundreds of thousands of network devices. So it was an invaluable experience for me. I got to touch all sorts of different different devices, uh, different models, lots of different vendors. Um, I learned how to open attack case. I learned how to deal with stressful situations like a P1. Um, it, it was a really awesome experience and I got, I, I wouldn't trade that for the world. So I uh, was lucky enough to work there for about two and a half years. And then, you know, during that time I learned more and opened up my stupid Twitter account and started interacting <laughs> with other network engineers outside of just IBM. Um, at one point I was approached by someone from Blue Origin who had noticed that I had the tagline in my Twitter bio that said, anybody know how I can get a job at NASA? Which was kind of a joke, but also serious because he wouldn't <laughs> right, right. work for NASA. Um, and he, he messaged me on Twitter. He had apparently found me because I was streaming myself studying for cert exams. And he was like, hey, um, if you're really interested in aerospace networking, um, you know, I can give you some information about protocols you might want to look into and learn about. And I was like, heck yeah, <laughs> let's have a conversation. So he was awesome. We had this great conversation about protocols that I didn't know what any of them were. I hadn't heard of them. Uh, I think I remember one of the ones he mentioned was time triggered ethernet, which is super cool. And I like, there's not that much information about it out there, oh, but you, you sent know. me down a rabbit hole because you tweeted about or said on a, maybe one of your podcasts time triggered ethernet. And I'm like, what is this mystical thing I have never heard of and started reading about it. And I found a couple of white papers that some company yeah. had put out and started digging into it. And it's like, there's just, yeah, dang it, Lexi. Yeah. Yeah. You, 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 that it is interesting stuff. There's a whole world of aerospace networking. That's just wild, but we'll get into it. anyway. So we had a good conversation about, about that kind of stuff. And then it sort of fizzled out as Twitter conversations do. Um, and then a few months later, he actually messaged me and was like, Hey, I don't work for NASA, but I do work for blue origin. We have a job opening. Are you interested? Mm. Uh, of course I said, yes, <laughs> you know? So do you feel like having a public presence, like a Twitter presence helped? Yeah, absolutely. Twitter is the best thing I did for my career. Specifically though, not just having a Twitter, specifically the the best thing that I did for myself was to really publicly show myself learning. Because mm -hmm. actually, I I don't think he originally found me via Twitter. He found me when I was streaming myself studying for a certification exam. Was it and like Twitch or YouTube or something? At that time, I want to say it was RPAN, believe it or not. It was Reddit. 
(laughs) That's actually where I started streaming, which I don't recommend (laughs) starting to stream on Reddit. You get a lot, but (laughs) when you're a woman, at least I don't recommend that. Um, But you do, you do get what's, what's interesting about streaming on, on RPAN is that you get a bunch of random people. It's not just people who are interested in the category that you've selected, or at least that's how it is now, how it was then. And so you can go, you'll be thrown across people's feeds who just like aren't even in tech at all or interested, but he found me streaming myself on this platform learning. And then, you know, I, I did a plug for my Twitter and that's how he messaged me. Hmm. Um, so, so what compelled you to want to publicly show yourself learning? Cause that's a pretty vulnerable state to be in. And oh. particularly maybe for a young person and a woman in a male dominated space like networking. Well, like I said, don't do it on RPAN if you're a woman, but (laughs) (laughs) I did meet some really cool network engineers that way, actually just randomly came across their, their feeds. But I originally started on RPAN because I had noticed that it was a new, this was back when it came out, the, the Reddit public, I forget what it stands for, but it's their, it's their streaming service. That's not very good. And um, it was new back then. And I thought it was interesting and I have attention issues with studying. I'm really bad at sitting there with a textbook and reading it and understanding it and like recalling that information. So I, I get really distracted. So I was actually using it originally to just hold myself to like the seat and actually talk out loud, think out loud um, about the material. And that actually I found helped me stay studying for longer periods of time and I could retain the information better. So it was really a study tool for me. And then I noticed over time, network engineers or people who knew this stuff would come across my streams and actually join and be very cool and share information. And if I didn't explore, if I didn't understand something that I was reading, I would, you know, talk about it and they would, they would help me understand. I'd get explanations in the chat. Like it was it turned into a tiny, tiny little microcosm of a community for me. And I'd never had that one studying for search before. That's so that's really interesting. Yeah, it was, it, I can't overstate how wonderful the network engineering community is in helping each other learn. It's so great. So that was my first little taste of it. Um, and mm. I moved over to Twitch just because our pan turned into a dumpster fire being a woman and, uh, Twitch, you can sort of customize the experience better. I have my like little logo and stuff up and it's like, you know, I can share my face yeah. as well as the PDF or whatever I'm reading from. Right. So. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you, you've got that, uh, anybody know anybody at NASA in your, uh, Twitter tagline was there, did you have an interest in aerospace sort of from the beginning, like growing up, like a lot of kids do, or, uh, was it something else that, you know, made you interested in wanting NASA or then when this blue origin opportunity came around? Always been a fan of NASA, always been a fan of outer space. I like mysterious, creepy things and space is the ultimate for me. (laughs) Uh, But I'm going to be honest, I never, I was always sort of, I guess, tangentially interested in tech, but I fell into the trap as a young person and all the way up through being like a young adult of thinking I'm too stupid or like not math inclined enough Mm -hmm, to, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, to be able to do engineering stuff, right? So I grew up believing that I wasn't smart enough or math inclined enough to do anything to do with engineering. And so, you know, that included aerospace content, um, astronaut type things, you know, outer space. Uh, So I, I never actually seriously entertained 
anything in aerospace engineering or network engineering or anything like that as a serious um, career field I could get into. I, I, so I got to ask, why, why, why? Was it uh, like you didn't do well with their math classes or you, you know, there wasn't a teacher that kind of made math accessible to you? This is a really philosophical question and a really good one. I think there's a, there's not just like one reason. Um, what I do, what I want to say, what I want to emphasize, I guess, is that I, I had opportunities to learn things like programming there. I wasn't, I'm a little bit too old to have reached, you know, programming classes at the cusp of like at the peak of, of people really trying to get women specifically into tech more. Um, but I was like, right, right prior to that. And, and so I had some accessibility to like programming classes, but I didn't have any friends who were interested in tech. I didn't have like a man or a friend who was a guy come up to me and be like, Hey, we should build a computer. Um, I never had anybody approach me and say, Hey, do you know what networking is? Let me tell you about it. Like nobody ever really exposed me to anything. And so all I knew was that there were CS classes in high school and I wasn't going to do them because that's for nerds and I'm not a nerd, you know, like it's, it's stupid, right. stereotypical teenage stuff. And, right. you know, it, part of it is being a teenager and wanting to do what everyone else is doing. And all the other girls my age were not doing technical things like that or looking at computers, um, which I, it sounds so silly to say right now, because I, I like to think we've moved past a lot of that, but no, I, I want to say mostly I was not exposed to how cool it can be and um, how doable it is. It, it's it all seems sort of nebulous and out of reach to me all the yeah. way up through college and everything. Yeah, those cultural norms can be very powerful. In, yeah, in and we don't negative know. and positive ways. And it is kind of an invisible force field that you don't necessarily recognize as keeping you from something. Yeah, I'm pretty sure if I had gone to someone and said, I want to learn network engineering or I want to take this class, no one would have been like, no, you can't do that. You're a girl. Like no one would have ever said <laughs> right, that right, to me. Right. right. But but it's still sort of like this, like you said, a cultural norm, more or less. And I would have really had to, I guess, break a, some kind of mold in order to like push into the tech field. And it just was not something that looked interesting to me because I never saw anything that exposed me to how cool it can be. And I wow. didn't know what network engineering was till I was 28 years old. So <laughs> something else you said was yeah. how doable it is. I mean, when you start digging into this stuff yeah. and it, yeah, if you don't know the jargon and you don't understand the problems that are being solved, you have no context, it's all foreign and seems like it's a lot. But then as you start studying it, and if you can get into a Netacad program or something that can break it down for you and give you some structure so you can start learning the material and what all is happening, it is so accessible. It's not, the people that design this stuff at the IETF level, that's not what you have to be as a network engineer to be able to do networking. You don't have to be able to do calculus or anything super, com, you know, more complex than basic math for the vast majority of it. If you can convert mm -hmm. hex to decimal and uh, binary, it doesn't tend to get more complicated than that mathematically to do network engineering. Yeah. It is so accessible. It's so accessible. Yeah. And that's the miracle of that Netacad class for me is that I sat down in a classroom with, you know, an instructor who looked like me, who related yeah. to me, uh, who explained these things. And it was all, you know, the Cisco material was um, really easy to understand. It was, it was put in a clear manner and, and, you know, it, it, that, that I think might've been 
what contributed the most to the mind blowing moment for me. Not only was it really cool subject matter, but like I also understood it. And that's what really, I don't know, transformed me a bit. Now, I'm assuming you didn't just get a job offer because you said some cool things uh, streaming <laughs> and on Twitter. You had to go through an interview process to uh, to get the gig at Blue Origin. Can you talk about the interview process, what that was like? Yeah. Um, so the first interview that I had was with my potential manager and uh, the senior engineer on the team and the person who had recruited me who ended up being the architect of the network on New Glenn. Um, and that was great. It was just sort of a casual discussion, more or less. They did ask me some general technical questions, but it was really just a feel out sort of what I know, what how I think the troubleshooting process. I remember they asked me about, you know, troubleshooting and sort of how I would approach a specific issue. Um, as, there was, as opposed there was no to an quizzing. interview where it's so deeply technical, like... Uh, Explain an RFC one, two, three, four, what the OSPF yeah. header bits. It wasn't that sort of a thing. Cause I've actually been in some of those interviews where it's like, guys, really, you're asking me that? I don't know. I can look it up. I don't know. Yeah. I would never pass that interview. It was not like that. It was not okay. like that. It was a very, it was a very dynamic and thoughtful and interesting interview. They told me more about the job as well. Um, but mostly I could tell they wanted to get a feel for who I was as a person and my logical troubleshooting thought process. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was the first interview. Yeah. And that, that was a great, and I, I left that interview going, oh man, that was so cool. Like mm. what an awesome job, you know, it's too bad. I'm not going to get it. You know. <laughs> so, <laughs> Immediately uh, the imposter syndrome kicked in, huh? Oh yeah. Well, well, you know, it was a great chat, but you know, they asked me about some protocols I can't mention, <laughs> but they asked me about some <laughs> things and, and some network structure, you know, architecture type things. And, and I was like, you know what? I, I have studied that in a textbook, but I have never worked with it. I'm sorry. And they're like, okay, all right. You know, that kind of conversation. So I, I went away from it with, a, it was a very positive experience. Didn't feel bad about myself when I left that interview. I just thought, you know, what a cool job. This is what I want to aim for in the future. Hmm. And uh, for some reason, they asked me for a second interview. <laughs> and at that point, I had to actually seriously consider like, all right, I may have to move across the country. Is this real? Because uh. um, <clears throat> they had warned me that this job was actually, I was living in Texas at the time and they had warned me, you know, this would be an on-site job in Kent, Washington. Okay. So at that point, I, you know, I thought about it some and the imposter syndrome, I guess, if you want to call it that, like kicked in this job, Rick, I looked at it. I'm, I wasn't qualified for it. Like, I'll be honest, I was not qualified for the job posting they put out there. Um, so I, I was very flattered by their uh, ask that I come back for a second interview. But mostly my feeling was, okay, if I'm going to prepare and stress for weeks about this, is it worth it if I know I'm not going to get the job in the end? Is it going to be worth the stress? And I know a lot mm -hmm. of people like to recommend you go through the process anyway, because it's good practice. But for me, uh, the idea of like a deep, deep technical interview was so terrifying and I did not feel mm -hmm. ready for it, especially at the level I assumed they were going to be doing it. I eventually decided that I wasn't going to go through with the second interview. So I oh. told him no. Um, and then, you know, I had a, a nice email like crafted where I was like, look, this is a dream job. I am so, so honored that you even considered me for this. It was great to meet you. 
I would love to be considered for this job in the future, but right now, you know, you deserve someone who can do the job well, and I am not there yet. And uh, I got a response from the manager and uh, the guy who initially contacted me and, and two very nice emails from them. And they said a lot of really nice things about me. And, you know, it was essentially like you, you are one of the best people we've interviewed. We would really, we hope that you reconsider, please reconsider. Wow. As someone who's interviewed a lot of people, um, I I can tell you a few things about Rex. First of all, that is the ideal candidate, the candidate that we know doesn't exist, but if they had all these skills, that would be amazing. (laughs) And all you hope for when resumes come through are people with some subset of what's on the rec, because you're never going to find that person. You're just never going to find And if you can find them, you're probably not going to be able to afford them uh, because they can do all that stuff. So that's a thing. Yep. Another thing when interviewing people, I'm not there to find out that they can, they know every little technical detail as much as I am. How does their brain work? Which sounds like what Blue Origin was trying to find out with you. And... What is their experience, you know, and are they honest? You know, can they say, yeah, I know this and I haven't worked with that. I know a little bit about it, but I didn't get into it that deeply. Or as, as has happened to me a few times, people will do things like, oh, I know MPLS. They don't know anything about MPLS, but they connected to a service <laughs> provider that runs MPLS. And so therefore they decided to put MPLS on their resume. So you, you ferret out those kind of things yeah. and really figure out what people know. Uh, and so those of you that are listening to Lexi's story here and, you know, me given my two cents, having interviewed a lot of people, don't underestimate your chances at getting a job just because you can't check every box that's on the rec. You got a better shot than to think you do, especially if you've got a good personality and are really good interacting with other human beings. So, so Lexi, you went back, um, you did go after they said nice things and for that second interview, it sounds like, yeah. Yeah. I just needed flattery really. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, a little psychological I, I, judo you played on them right there. Yeah, there you go. Uh, no, I, uh, I thought it over again. I was terrified, but I decided like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to go, I'm going to go for it. Um, and it turns out what the second interview was, was a technical presentation. It was, I think maybe three hours long total, but the technical presentation part, which was, you know, what I needed to prepare in advance was in roughly hour long presentation um, about me and my skills and the tools that I've used. And I think I ended up doing a presentation explaining, you know, in general terms without giving anything away about the company, you know, some, some of the um, specific networking issues that I had troubleshot and solved at IBM. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, mm-hmm. I, you know, sanitized it all, but um, you know, it, they wanted it to be a technical deep dive. So I made it a technical deep dive and I, I prepared for a very long time for this. Um, and so that was the first hour ish of that interview. The and next did you do this in person or, uh, Oh or no, like, this was remote. This was remote. Was Cause remote. everybody okay. was in Kent and I was in Texas. Okay. Most, most people were remote. Yeah. So, Got it. uh, yeah. So they just had me do it over. Um, and I don't, I think this was, this was still part of the pandemic. They, they might've actually had me come up in person normally, but because of the pandemic at the time, I think they were just doing things remotely anyway. So, okay. And was that um, more comfortable for you mm-hmm. to be uh, sort of mediated by the screen or do you think it would have been different to have to do it in person? 
Yeah, I I was I was very glad it was remote because I'm super fidgety when I'm nervous and I was just insanely nervous for this. Also, it was, you know, it was nice to like I did the presentation. I could just share my screen like it wasn't like I had to stand up and like formally figure out what to do with like my posture and my arms and stuff, you know. The first uh, so secret test really is nice. can we get the AV working and then <laughs> Oh my gosh. Can I use PowerPoint properly or did I just fail this interview? Yeah. So, um, so that, so the last two hours ish of that interview process were me talking for about a half an hour with other uh, people on the team and like sort of mini interviews, but they were more casual. So I spoke with a couple other engineers. I spoke with the architect. I spoke with the manager at the very end. And that was, um, that was the last interview that I had to do for them before I got the job offer. Wow. What was the interval between the interview and the offer? I, in the very last, the very last person I spoke to was the manager. And he, he, one of the things he asked me was like, all right, what's keeping you from taking the job? So I kind of had the offer unofficially, I guess, right there Uh in the interview. Uh Um, The official job offer came, I think either the next day, it was very short. It was like, it must have been the next day, I think. Okay, that's wow. pretty good. So they didn't make yeah. you sit on tender hooks. You you, right. walked out yeah, of there feeling like, okay, I think this offer's coming in. Yeah, Blue, when they decide to hire, which which has been happening for a while now, they get on it very quickly, as that's I've great. learned. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So yeah, did you, so it was a positive experience overall, I gotta say. Did you lose your mind immediately when you got the job offer? Well... <laughs> You know, I knew, I knew it was coming The when I lost my mind internally, at least was like in the interview with the manager, because at that point, when he asked me that question, I realized, oh my gosh, a lot of this was just a formality. <laughs> like they really did want me for the job <laughs> early on. Um, so, so that I had to, I had to like control myself in that last sort of conversation with him. Um, but yeah, I was absolutely stoked and terrified. And then after the interview, I talked to my partner and I was like, I think we have to move. I don't know what to do. (laughs) You know, like I did kind of freak out quite a bit afterwards. We interrupt this podcast for a brief word from Packet Pusher sponsor InterOptic. InterOptic has been the trusted optical transceiver supplier for many federal, state, and local government networks and Fortune 500 companies. They provide friendly U.S.-based OEM agnostic networking expertise to help you choose the best optics and fiber to future-proof your networks at the lowest cost. Why continue to pay OEM prices for optics? Talk to the experts who will deliver brand-equivalent transceivers at a fraction of the cost. InterOptic can help you and your team create a more nimble physical layer. Their optical transceivers are guaranteed 100% compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and other switches. InterOptic physically tests every single transceiver before it's shipped, and their transceivers are built to the exact same quality standards as the OEMs and typically come from the same manufacturing lines. That means you can purchase the same, if not better performing, optical transceivers tested and designed by engineers who truly understand the specifications critical to your network at a fraction of OEM costs. It's time to take control of your optics purchases with InterOptic. Find out how at interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. That's interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. And now back to the conversation. So what's the transition been like as you've moved from the enterprise, more the enterprise side of things, uh, working at IBM, uh, over to the aerospace world? Are there, there are pretty big differences in the work environment? 
Yeah, pretty big differences for the job role, at least. You know, we both, it's, it's you know, an office environment, similar that way. But um, I am, where, where I was before at IBM, I was working in a knock environment. And so uh, the overwhelming majority of the people that I interacted with on a daily basis were network engineers. And um, it was a fairly more or less predictable environment. Uh, my goals for the day were also predictable. I might've been working different tickets every day, but it was still like work your tickets, make sure the network's good. If there's a P1 respond to it, you know, it was, it was fairly predictable in that way. My work environment is quite different now in a number of ways. I don't work with other network engineers. Most of the time, the majority of the people I interact with on a daily basis are electrical engineers, software engineers, and systems engineers. Um, I also am on my feet a lot more back in the knock. Obviously I was sitting down with like three big screens in front of me all day long. Uh. And, you know, at blue, I'm running around, I'm in the lab, I'm on my feet. I also have this mini little rack of my own within the lab. And I, I work on that a lot. And so I'm touching hardware and I'm going back and forth from my desk to the lab, you know, there's a lot of movement involved for well, sure. You're working with people at Blue who are building an integrated system. The network is mm -hmm. part of that system. And so you're integrating with, uh, you're um, interacting with other builders. Is that fair to yeah. say? Yeah, I actually, we have this little team that is, you know, in the lab all the time and they're the integrators for the vehicle network, so to speak. I am actually the network person. So all of the networking equipment and adjacent things on the vehicle are sort of my territory. But then, you know, we have, a, you know, software engineers that do tooling and we've got um, an integrator who's a systems engineer and that person um, helps with the logistics and planning within that lab for, you know, meeting our goals and things like that. So I, I work with them on a daily basis and it's like, I'm, I'm learning something new every day, basically, because I'm exposed to way more than just network engineering. Right. I was going to ask, there must be, you know, all kinds of new terminology and language and uh, yeah. Yeah. That you have to kind of take on to figure out what problem am I trying to solve? I still don't know half the acronyms I need to know. Most of them are not blue specific acronyms. They're acronyms for like aerospace and testing and industrial stuff that I've never uh -huh. been exposed to before. So there's a lot, there's a lot that goes on there for sure. Um, yeah, I'm definitely, sometimes I don't feel like I've done any network engineering that day. It's been electrical engineering or something like that, right? So, yeah, it's an interesting environment. I'm curious, coming out of a knock sounds like it could be a fairly high stress environment, particularly if you're supporting customers. Do you, do you feel, what's what's the stress or pressure like being in this environment? Is it the same? Is it different? How What's it like? It's very different, but it's still quite stressful for me personally. I think this might have to do a little bit with like personality, but I... I feel actually more stress and pressure in the environment I'm in now. And that's not to say it's a negative or toxic environment in any way, but it's a different kind of pressure that I'm not used to. So for example, in the knock, your pressures are typically like fix the thing before, you know, too many customers get angry, mm -hmm. um, get, get, you know, this router back up and working, um, make sure that you're communicating properly with customers as you're fixing the thing versus, um, you know, now my pressure is 
I don't have a lot of network engineers around me, for example, in the knock I did. And so if I needed help, I could just talk to somebody or consult with someone if I needed to think out loud or something. But in the environment I'm in now, I'm often the only network engineer around because the other network engineers on my team, two other ones, that's it. Um, they are remote. So mm -hmm. me being the integrator for the networking team, I am often the only network engineer around. And so I'm expected to know what I'm talking about when I'm basically consulting for people who are trying to integrate their boxes onto mm -hmm. the network. Right. So uh, it's been an interesting experience. There are a lot of smart people, a lot of very intelligent people who know their stuff very well. And a lot of them pick up um, tidbits of networking over their careers, right? But they don't have like that foundational base in networking. So communicating with someone who is used to knowing all the answers um, about, you know, disabusing them of like a notion that's a little bit inaccurate networking wise has been an interesting sort of social tightrope for me a little bit because, you know, you, you want to build rapport, but you also need to make sure that people understand what they're doing when they're talking about the network or when they're proposing well, changing the network. Right? Really brilliant people can have really big egos too. So are you also doing some ego management? Yes. <laughs> that is, uh, if I'm being a hundred percent honest, that is the biggest challenge for me right now is just the ego thing. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's not to say, you know, it's not everybody I interact with at all. It's just that, you know, it depends on who you interact with daily and, you know, who it is that you happen to have as the SME for whatever, you know, mm. issue you're dealing with at the time. Right. Um, overall, right. it's a very positive environment for learning. Um, but it is, you know, in any environment with a lot of highly intelligent people, it is a little bit of like ego tightrope. <laughs> so that has been <laughs> soft skills come in handy there. Uh -huh. Good old soft skills. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I'm curious how, I don't know how much you can say, but when having to deal with someone who thinks they know better than you, is it sort of like, all right, we're going to throw down on ethernet protocol and it's going to be a, you know, uh, who knows more kind of a thing, or is it, uh, yeah. How do you handle that kind of uh, interaction? That's a good question. Um, well, if it, if it explains it better, I have read the 802.3 standard like four times at this point, just yeah. so that I can tell people <laughs> that you can get thousand base T to work properly without auto negotiation. Leave me alone. It's in the standard. <laughs> it's in the standard and it actually wow. technically supports it. Maybe they didn't mean for it to support like not using auto negotiate, but it works. And in the standard, the wording technically does not say you have to use auto negotiation for thousand base T. So anyway, I, I have definitely had throwdowns with people over that standard and we've whipped it out and like had, <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's, it's, I've definitely had to do that a number of times, but ultimately, you know, it hasn't really been contentious. It's just kind of fun and nerdy, honestly, because ultimately everybody comes out of that conversation, learning something or how, like knowing for sure, like, I know for sure I'm right. And I, you know, this just, you know, cements my confidence in my knowledge versus 
that other person learned something. Or if I'm wrong, I learned something. So uh -huh. I don't mind those kinds of interactions, right? Because it's all it's all in good fun at the end of the day. And we're all just working to, we just want this rocket to go, <laughs> right? So right. Well, it, it doesn't sound team. like you're, you're intimidated or overwhelmed. It sounds like you're mentally like stimulated and engaged by this kind of stuff all day. When it's network engineering, absolutely. When it's like, you know, software development, eh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. I could throw down on the 802.3 standard if, if anybody wants to. Like I, I've had a lot of fun with that. Well, it's, I was laughing when you said you've read that standard. I, I haven't read all of it, maybe bits and pieces Don't. here and there. It's There's a huge no reason. document. Don't it's, do it. It's, it's like 6,000 pages. Yeah. When I said I've read it, I've read all the words, but I've read paragraph <laughs> by paragraph over months and months. I've been here for eight yeah. months. Okay. So it's been, it's been a work in progress, but mm. yeah, um, there's no reason anyone should read that entire document. I just, I just have. <laughs> so, so we know you can't get too specific and, you know, we're kind of, we are talking in generalities here. Are there other things you can share about, um, you know, designing a network for a space varying space faring vehicle? Yeah. Um, so interesting. I learned so much in the first just month of my time here at Blue, um, just unraveling a lot of things that I thought I knew about networks just by considering, okay, well, your network now is not going to stay on earth. It has to blast off into space. What do you do? You know, just right. considering that as like a, an exercise, a thought exercise has really actually helped me learn more about networking. Um, I can definitely talk generally, like, you know, you have some similarities between networks on earth and a network designed to go on a vehicle that's going to launch into space. Like for example, cost, everyone is, you know, you have to consider your budget. We, none of us can escape that, right? None of us can escape the budget. So you I, I, wanna, I'm actually surprised to hear you say that. I would have assumed I know, you I knew really that would come wouldn't up. have a budget limitation for something like that, huh? <laughs> Uh, you know, I can't, I honestly can't give you specific cause I don't know about our budget, but yeah, I mean, like we operate like a legit company, huh? <laughs> we are a yeah, legitimate yeah. company, right? Oh, like, yeah. Um, so we do, we do have a budget and also just to point out, actually, one of our main goals as, as a co company, one of our like big sort of mission statements is that we want to make getting into space accessible to everyone. And so it doesn't actually help anyone that much if we pay exorbitant amounts of money for like specialized hardware, we need to figure out how to do this in a cost-effective way. So hmm. it doesn't really benefit our company anyway to just throw money at stuff, right? Cause we wanna, we're trying to help the whole world here. Not, not just us, right? So does this mean you're able to use off the shelf gear or does it have to be ruggedized or do you, do, do you have to go to specialty markets for some of this stuff? So I can't speak specifics again about like what we use, but sure. if you think about like networking, any kind of networking equipment, uh, whether it's router switches, you know, your cabling, firewall stuff, whatever, anything that needs to go on a rocket, blast off into space, like think about, think about what it's not going to experience on earth that it will on that rocket. So like, a lot of, a lot of vibration, you know, right. your, your data centers on earth don't typically vibrate a lot, but on a rocket, mm. they definitely do. There are some exceptions, right? I'm sure we, <laughs> there's exceptions to everything, but yeah, like there's a ton of vibration on the rocket when it's, when it's like getting ready to launch. And then obviously when it's in the air, you also have extreme temperatures. So yep. the engine's going, that's basically controlled explosions, right? Mm -hmm. So super, super, super hot at first, but as that vehicle gets into space and ascends up into the atmosphere, um, it's going to get very, very cold. And so you have the extremes of temperatures. Um, 
and then you get into the radiation issue, you right. basically have to harden your devices. And we talk a lot in networking, I think about like, and security about logically hardening your devices, right? <laughs> For security, compliance and stuff like that. But you have to actually physically harden these devices as well so that they can withstand the intense you know, extremes that they're going to experience when yeah. getting to space and being in space. Right? I didn't expect you to say that from a standpoint of, I guess I would have assumed the vehicle itself would provide all the radiation shielding for whatever's inside, but it sounds like not the case. No, nah, I mean, there's, we definitely have that on the vehicle. I don't know the specifics because I'm not, you know, I'm not in the manufacturing, you know, areas of blue, but yeah, we definitely have that on the vehicle, but it's always a good idea to harden your devices as well. I mean, we're talking mm. insane temperatures, right? right? And when I say vibration, it might sound like very tame, but it is, it is enough to, you know, destroy data centers, the vibration on the rocket. So, yeah. you know, you, you have to really, really, really harden stuff. So we do use hardened devices, regardless of what the, what is inside those like hardened chassis. We definitely have to do that, and and do we go through a stringent you know testing and qualification process for the materials that we use to harden them as well. So. I'm imagining Lexi sitting in the lab holding a router overhead, shaking it really hard. Yeah, it's good. It's good. <laughs> yeah, Probably we all just you know uh, <laughs> just a little bit. So uh, you, yeah, so. You mentioned firewalls. Do you actually have to put security devices onto your network as well? I, you know, again, I can't talk specifics about what we do to secure the devices, but we definitely have to like implement security, right? That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of similarities, like I said, between like an earthbound network and a network that has to go into space. If you think about it, a rocket is really just a giant bomb, right? So like you definitely do not want someone hacking your rocket, because uh, that's really, really dangerous. That would be a bad thing, yes. Mm -hmm. Well, you could have said, uh, it's a self-contained network that's air-gapped. We never talk to the internet or outside the rocket. And so security is actually less of a priority. And I'd be like, oh, okay, I guess that makes sense if you do it that way. Understandable. Um, we do want telemetry from the rocket. We do yep. want to know what's going on. It is designed to be autonomous and do everything, you know, itself, but we, we do want some information from it in flight. And so, you know, we have to secure everything. So how do you troubleshoot then? So you got a rocket going up. Do you, do you, and you're streaming telemetry in real time from the rocket, do you have to troubleshoot the network itself or is there a process for that? Yeah, that's another difference. So on the vehicle, like I said, it's designed to be autonomous and it, we, we, when we run tests in the lab that I work in, we're simulating flight. And in order to qualify this network to say like, yes, officially, you know, it's documented for all intents and purposes, this network is ready to go on the physical rocket and fly to space. Uh, we do some very stringent tests and it involves like simulating flight as closely as we can without actually flying that network. So we have things that simulate sensors and actuators and the data that they would be getting from the environment in the lab that, you know, sends that data to the computers on the rocket and they then interpret it as environmental data and respond to it in that way. And so um, we are this rocket has to be able to, it's designed to do it all itself without anyone commanding it or needing to troubleshoot. And there are, we do have ways of, for example, if radiation causes issues, we have built in ways for things to recover from that. 
but um, ultimately no one's going to be able to like SSH to like a router on the rocket. <laughs> that was my question. And like, like you, can you just you know, SSH into a, into a device and, you know, <laughs> configure private, you know, disable <laughs> interface, right? Like we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't do that in flight. Um, it Don't is worry everybody. I, I put a back door in, we're all good. I can, yeah. I'm just going to read Well, <laughs> if things, you know, and, and part of the reason for that is because, you know, when you're talking about a rocket, like I mentioned, it's basically a giant bomb. And so things going wrong on that rocket are incredibly dangerous. So we've every single component on the rocket, even the tiny little things, they're all rated for like a safety rating and like how likely they are to fail on a scale of like one out of a million, you know, when would you see that thing fail? And, you know, that, that all contributes to like a, a reliability rating for the rocket. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we make sure that it's up to a certain very rigid standard so that the chances of things failing are very, very, very low. Um, but we do have built-in ways of making sure that like, you know, if something does go terribly wrong, the rocket, for example, will blow up in the sky instead of fall down to earth and then blow up. Right. right. You know, things mm -hmm. like that. Wow. Jeepers. What horrible mm -hmm. contingencies to have to plan for. So yeah. Let's see if I was... fail open or fail closed, you have to fail explode. <laughs> oh boy. Let's yeah. see if I was looking at the protocols that were in use, um, would, would they be familiar to me? Like if I'm familiar with Ethernet and IP and then routing protocols like uh, you know, OSPF or whatever, or would I be looking at stuff that's pretty specialized for the environment it's running in? It depends on what rocket you're looking at and what company you're at. You know, I can't say what SpaceX is doing on their stuff, for example. And right. I would guess that rockets at any company, you know, you might have one rocket with different protocols than another. You know, it just depends. Um, some of the protocols that I've, you know, seen mentioned used in aerospace networking are familiar to me and many of them are not. So hmm. a mix of both, I guess. Well, you walked in with enough of a background to be able to be not completely a fish out of water. I mean, you knew some of what was going on, but it's, so it's, it sounds like the basics are familiar, but then a whole lot of stuff you've had to pick up as you go. Yeah. Basics have been very, very, very important. Um, but yeah, I knew nothing about aerospace, anything, the testing and qualification process for all this stuff. I, I'm still very unclear on it's, it's pretty, you know, nebulous mm -hmm. to me, but I'm still learning. Uh, maybe in a few years, I'll be up to speed on most things, but yeah, aerospace is a totally different world. There's a lot of, a lot of interesting things that you have to go through and know about in order to, you know, qualify something for flight that you wouldn't have to do for a network that stays on earth. So, yeah. So Lexi, uh, I think as we close, we should, uh, people can follow you on the internet. You're, you're pretty active socially and all that stuff. You, uh, you, 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 let's put, let's call them memes. You have a lot of memes that you, uh, you share with the world via your Twitter account and stuff. <laughs> so why do you do the memes and where can I follow them? <laughs> so you can find me on Twitter being an idiot at track it pacer. That's packet tracer, but switch the two first, yeah, yeah. like, you know, consonants or whatever, uh, track a pacer on Twitter. I, I started doing those image macros with like crazy fonts and just like a dumpster fire in the background. Just there's a lot of curse words in them. Okay. But like, I, I was very frustrated with BGP one day. Yeah, I was, like, was going to bring up that one. Yeah. <laughs> that was my very first one. I was so annoyed with learning the best path selection process that I just, I just vented by making this silly image macro where I was just cursing out how silly BGP is and how much I hate it. 
um, and how frustrating it is to learn. And people really liked it. So I started doing it for more protocols. And I think my most recent one is on an oscilloscope because I recently learned how to use that. And it's, it is not very informative. They they've gotten less informative over time because I'm, you know, getting lazy, but it's still fun to complain. So yeah, I have a, at the top of my Twitter, you know, page, I have a pinned tweet that has a thread of all the, uh, memes that I have uh, done over the past several months. If anybody wants to check that out. I think you got to reach out to a publisher. There's a coffee table book here for network engineers. And those, <laughs> those memes. I'll need a, a graphic designer or someone a little bit better at like finding dumpster fire stock images, but yeah, absolutely. I'm open. <laughs> so you're at track and pacer on Twitter where you're sharing uh, uh, memes, shall we call them? And are you still live streaming? You want Twitch still or anything like that? Yeah, I I did a brief hiatus without telling anyone for a while just because I didn't feel like it, but I am I am track at pacer on Twitch as well and I now am reliably regularly streaming uh, Mondays at 6:30 Pacific time and those uh, live streams are generally me reading out of a book called Ethernet the definitive guide please don't sue me O'Reilly it is a good book <laughs> and I'm learning a lot about Ethernet um, and after the fact if you can't make it to the stream I do uh, post those on my YouTube channel where I am also track at pacer Lucky that you got that branding unified across platforms. Good for you. Yeah, yeah that yeah. has not worked out for me nearly <laughs> as well. Uh, <laughs> well, let's wrap up the show here, Drew. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I am at EC Banks. Uh, you can find my humans in IT and IT podcast lists there on my Twitter account. You might like to follow those. And I also have an IT education tweet collection and my DMs are open. And Drew, how can people follow you on the internet? Uh, you can see my blogs on packetpushers.net, and I am also on Twitter at Drew underscore CM. My thanks to Lexi for taking time out of her schedule to join Heavy Networking today. And thanks to you for listening to this episode. I hope you got something out of it, but maybe, just maybe, you want even more. In that case, go ahead and visit packetpushers.net for all of our 100% free and privacy-respecting resources available to you for your professional career development. We've got a Slack group, white papers, industry news and analysis articles, technical blog articles, our newsletter called Human Infrastructure Magazine. We have a YouTube channel as well with short tech clips and long-form nerdy presentations and of course our entire podcast lineup lots and lots of shows including heavy strategy with greg farrow and john Till johnson great for you architects out there and brand new kubernetes unpacked with michael levon follow us on twitter and linkedin at packet pushers to keep up with everything that we are making for you and last but not least remember that too much networking would never be enough